The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thank you for listening. This is from the Blue Cliff Record. Feng Shui's One Atom of Dust, the pointer. To set up the banner of the teaching and establish its fundamental message is a matter for a genuine teacher of the school. To judge dragons and snakes, distinguish the initiate from the naive, one must be an accomplished teacher. As for discussing killing and giving life on the edge of a sword, discerning what is appropriate for the moment with a staff, this I leave aside for the moment. Just tell me, in one phrase, how you will assess the matter of occupying the heartland single-handedly. To test, I cite this. Feng Shui, giving a talk, said, If you set up a single atom of dust, the nation flourishes. If you do not set up a single atom of dust, the nation perishes. Suedo raised his staff and said, Are there any students of the way? who will live together and die together. <clears throat> the verse. <clears throat> the old peasants may not unfurrow their brows, but for now, I hope that the nation establishes a sturdy foundation. Crafty ministers, valiant generals, where are they now? 10,000 miles, pure wind, only I know. So Feng Shui was a teacher in the um, 10th century, taught for m much of the 10th century. And um, the full dialogue that this koan was taken from, one day Feng Shui said, establish one mode of dust and the nation flourishes. The villagers knit their brows in anxiety. Not establishing one mode of dust and the nation is lost. The hundred households live in peace. When you understand this, there's nothing more, and everything is your teacher. If this is not understood, then your teacher is a priest. This teacher and priest can together enlighten the entire world, or blind the entire world. Do you want to know who the priest is? Feng Shui slapped his right side, right here. Do you want to know the teacher? He slapped his left side, right here. I spoke yesterday a little bit about um, the language and how sometimes, very often actually, um, well, I mean, pretty much all the time, the koans are using ordinary language in dialogues uh, drawn from a teacher, uh, a sutra. And sometimes they're, they're always using language, the words, in, with their ordinary meaning, but often with other meaning, with deeper meaning, with meaning that isn't fixed. And so it's up to the student to examine really themselves and understand the, 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 the meanings and how those words are bringing them to that. In this um, koan, <clears throat> It uses language in a way which is contrary to what we would think. 
If you set up a single atom of dust, the nation flourishes. Well, that would seem like a very good thing. Why have the the villagers knit their brows in anxiety? If you don't set up a single atom and the nation perishes, that would seem to be a bad thing. Why are the hundred households living in peace? And so the language, in a sense, is to get our attention. If it just conveyed what we already know, we would just pass right by. And so it stops us. Sometimes it startles us and draws us in. What is going on here? Now, of course, we have to have some faith in the teacher, in the tradition, in the Dharma, that there is something going on. This is not just a wasting of time. And that in these ordinary words that are used in unordinary ways, it's conveying that everything that appears is not just what it seems. Raise one speck of dust and the nation flourishes and everyone is anxious. Travalikitajvara realizing emptiness of the skandhas, which the skandhas are basically how Buddhism speaks about your personhood. How do we, with our senses, come into knowing? Know anything. That you're a person, that you're here, and you're you're in this hall, you're hearing my words, you're the snowing outside. How do we know any of these things? And how do those things that we know become problems? How in the midst of plenty can we be impoverished? And so realizing emptiness of the five conditions, she relieved misfortune and pain. How the self comes into the world, how the world comes into being. We see, we experience things, we have perceptions, we call them by name. There is a world. Is it out there? Is it in here? In all of this, we know, we remember, we react, we name things, we associate, we anticipate, we expect, we want. When those are freed, liberated, there aren't so many things. When the mind is not creating, knowing, remembering, reacting, loving and hating, then what is it? when we're not giving rise to the sense of, I am here listening to this talk. What is in that moment? There's the the metaphor of dreaming, that samsara, to be caught in our delusions is to be in a dream and think the dream is real. That's why it's an apropos metaphor, because when we're dreaming, it seems pretty real. And so how do we dream this world? How do we dream a self into being? How do we dream our life? And so there's being asleep while dreaming, but there's being awake while dreaming. And it's not that there isn't someone sitting here listening, sitting here talking. But how are they sitting here listening and talking? How is it? Who is it? If you set up a single atom of dust, the nation flourishes. The footnote says, 
I am the creator of all things and the autonomous master of all things. Clusters of flowers, clusters of brocade, which refer to birth and death. I am the creator of all things. I am God. Speaking from the perspective of samsara. Remember years ago, I was with Dadaroshi at a conference of clergy who worked in prisons. And unsurprisingly, Dadaroshi was the only Buddhist. <clears throat> and and they, he was speaking, and they asked him, how in Buddhism, who's the creator of all things? Who is God? And Dadaroshi said, <laughs> and I thought, oh no, we're in, we're in trouble now. <laughs> <clears throat> Knowing that our lives are finite, wanting to set up and establish, leave something behind, right? I want to leave something behind, a monument, a legacy. I was reading an article recently about the super rich and how there's like a you know, a jonesing around yachts. And these are not, I don't even know what to call these things, right? They're not boats. They're like worlds on water, you know? I mean, they're really beyond the imagination of what they are. Like when you have everything, how do you have more, right? The legacy. I am the chief among all things. I am the autonomous, autonomous master. I live within bundles and bundles of life and death, sickness and conflict. An emperor once asked a national teacher, after you die, what will you need? And the teacher said, build me a seamless monument. And the emperor said, please tell me what this would look like. And the teacher was silent for a long time and then said, do you understand? That's the business of this house, leaving behind a seamless monument. The nation flourishes, raising an atom of dust. How does it flourish? For whom? Is it actually flourishing? The footnote says this is not the business of, this, of, of his house, Feng Shui's house. What is the business of this house? To not create imaginary worlds and, and, and believe them to be real. To not dream while sleeping and believe that is real. To not being subject to our impulsive consciousness and unexamined thoughts and believe they are the truth. to actually live and act in a way that is appropriate to reality, right? Like every other living thing, <laughs> right? Every other living thing lives appropriately in the midst of its reality. We have a hard time with that. And so here, during session all week, seeing the many motes of dust arise, right? the zendo can get very dusty, right? The establishing of states of mind and body, of self and other, 
pasts and futures, things that we carry, observing the changing landscapes as they come and go. The power of the mind. In one moment, one glance, one action, we can see something, judge it, come to a, a, a certainty and a full belief that we know what is happening, that we know who this person is, why they're doing what they're doing, what it means, and be quite wrong. Quite wrong. Sometimes we're fortunate enough to discover that we're wrong. But then it happens again, and it happens again. So flourishing here doesn't mean to prosper, thrive, or to be joyful or at peace. Here it means to proliferate, to accumulate layer upon layer, consequence upon consequence. The villagers knit their brows in anxiety, so much to gain, so much to lose. When you've got a yacht that big, where the hell do you park it? Right? I mean, I can't remember the amount of money that they quoted that it takes to actually just fill it up with gas. I mean, it was just like, no, that can't be right. I must be seeing that wrong. Like hundreds and thousands of dollars. Fill her up. <laughs> Meanwhile, there's a world in want. So I was thinking about this, our January session, beginning of this year, 2024. Oh, it's an election year. And so here we are again. Of course, we don't know quite what's going to happen. We will have to live that through. But we see all the markings of old beliefs, old fears, old prejudices, old patterns, not that old, actually. And at the same time, very old, being played out once again. So what do we know? Well, there will be winners and losers. There will be blaming. There will be haters and those hated. There will be the believers and the doubters, the creators and the destroyers. Hojin Sensei was just telling me that, having just returned from New Zealand, that, you know, who has, you know, for some years had a, a very sort of open, caring, quite liberal, inclusive government, and, and that they now have a very conservative government that is doing what conservative governments often do. And it's, there's trouble in paradise. What do we do, we as people, as a person, as a group, when we're afraid, really afraid, when we feel helpless, we feel like things are spinning out of control, we think that something that is rightfully mine is being taken away, even if I've never even had that thing. I could. That's the promise. Who's taking it away? What do we do when we're, when we're in the midst of change that we don't understand? We don't know where it's going. We don't know how this turns out. We see things slipping away as though they've always been stable and steady and permanent. And so naturally, we want to go back. Right? 
You're asleep, you're dreaming, you wake up, and there's chaos in the house. Go back to sleep. You know, I think it's an aspect of being a, a, a practitioner. And we don't, put this, we don't put this sign on the front door. We wait every, for everybody to find out on their own that as we practice and the Dharma awakens and awakens within us and we gain that courage and, and fearlessness and trust to actually turn towards what is difficult to face, hold what is difficult to hold, that in a way it does get harder, right? It gets harder. It's not that things are getting worse, although we could say that they are, but that we're just feeling them, we're experiencing them now without the veil, without the numbness, without the turning away. And that as practitioners, that's part of cultivating compassion, is being able and willing to do that. And then knowing how to do it, learning how to do that. So if you're carrying something that's heavy, can you carry it lightly? If we're aware of profound suffering that exists in the world, and we know that it's unnecessary, which makes it harder and more painful, because we know it doesn't have to be, how do we hold that heartbreak and still have joy? How do we go into a year like this where maybe for some it's, there's a glorious opportunity to go back to something great again? Maybe there's a lot of trepidation and fear about what might be coming and about what we see, not just here, but in the world. So how do we live in this world where atoms are being set up and there is a, a mighty flourishing? Brows are knit in anxiety on all sides. And to do all of that freely, voluntarily, right? <laughs> yeah. That's why, you know, if we actually got what we wanted and we just wanted to practice and then like be enlightened completely all at once and be totally compassionate all at once, maybe we wouldn't actually want that, right? Maybe it's good that we kind of go step by step, <laughs> right? Stepping into the fire, one toe at a time. So we learn how to actually do that, step in, live in this world. And then, you know, of course, it's our world. It seems like a, a new world. There are definitely new things happening. And it's also just very much off the shelf, samsara. And it's good to remember that. There's nothing new about samsara. The Buddha had it in his time. Feng Shui had it in his time. Dogen had it in his time. It's never but not been with us because it's never not been us. And so in that way, we have been living within this all the while. 
and now it's our time. So I was thinking, well, let, what if we reimagine a dream of long ago when a few atoms of dust were established, set up? Right? By those deserving an ongoing commitment who wanted to establish a more perfect union. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that every living thing, every being, is equal in its original nature. That each and every being and thing arises from a primordial emptiness with certain unalienable rights and dignities. And that among these are to live, to know freedom, and to seek true liberation. And that within our human world, in order to secure these rights, traditions, and commitments are instituted, deriving their just powers from the consent of those involved. And that whenever any form of creation loses its way or becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the concerned to examine, to reflect, and affect change, positive change. Strengthening the foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect safety, happiness, well-being. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that commitments and traditions long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that humankind are more disposed to suffer, while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed of their suffering. And yet all things abide within a state of impermanence and the naturally enlightened nature of all things is to move towards selfless wisdom and compassion. We arrive with Buddha nature. It's never anywhere else. It's never absent in anyone. When we practice in accord with this and our destructive impulses, and concepts wither. When we realize it, we see that all evil and all good arises from mind. Every atom established establishes from mind. All beings want to live and avoid destruction. And yet, our experience shows us that we are more disposed to suffer. As long as we can suffer our suffering, as long as we can tolerate it, than to right ourselves, to liberate ourselves by directly examining and addressing and dissolving and illuminating and liberating those very forms to which we have become accustomed. It's just one of the interesting things about human beings, isn't it? <laughs> we adapt. Every living being adapts. And we have a, an amazing capacity to adapt. You know, I've thought about people who live in crazy, crazy cold climates. You think of people migrating, migrating, settling, coming, and thinking, yeah, let's live here. <laughs> like, this is a good place to, like, raise a family, right? <laughs> we adapt. It's part of our genius. We adapt. It is part of our struggle. And we will suffer our sufferings as long as they are tolerable. At what point do they become intolerable? What does it take? 
Who can predict the moment when bodhicitta rises? Or before bodhicitta, and you realize, mm -mm, no, this is not working. There has to be something more. There is something more. We can work so hard to flourish, and all the while, and look at all the, the things we've done and accomplished and all the stuff we have, and yet every morning and every night we wake up, we go to bed in anxiety. I remember when my brother, my beloved brother, who I love dearly, who was, lived a very simple life as a carpenter, and as he was getting older, he you know, was starting to earn more money. I said, how's that going? He goes, it's good. He said, but it's complicated. It's harder. It's not all good. <laughs> and then he had children, which was great and a little complicated. We can knit our brows in anxiety and believe it has to be so. This is just the way it is. Everybody else is doing it. We can cause others to be anxious and fearful and think that they deserve to be that way. But why don't we just stop? If we actually just want to be at peace, if we just want to avoid pain and suffering, why don't we just do that? Why don't we just stop fighting and hating and believing lies and falsehoods? Why don't we just be kind and loving? Why are we so susceptible? Well, obviously, to think, to believe, to want, to have willpower, willfulness, it's not enough. We can start wars with it. We do. We can create havoc with it. We do. <laughs> but strangely, we can't undo all of that that we can so easily create. We can't undo all of that with just our will. And so we practice. As Dharashi said, we do. That's what we do as practitioners. We precipitate change by changing. We bring forth mindfulness by mindfulness. We bring forth compassion with compassion. We study the teachings. We examine, we turn towards and listen to the reports of those who know. And seeing the traditions and commitments of our own mind, our own karma, we try to abolish that. We try to extinguish it. We try and just tear it down, but we can't. We see that doesn't work. We see that that just continues our faith in the structure, the edifice of the suffering that we're trying to undo. It's just a new version of the old thing. We then see that there actually is no inherent body in this tradition, in these commitments, in this institution, in a person, in hatred, in love. And then in a sense, we don't have to create a new and better world. We don't have to create a permanent peace just don't set up a single atom of dust. Let the nation perish. Perish means no suffering, no cause of suffering, no extinguishing, no path, no wisdom, no gain, no gain, and thus the Bodhisattva lives. Prajnaparamita. 
The hundred households live in peace. They live in peace. Not creating dust means we can live in peace. So then, when we establish, set up some atoms, Tadaroshi set up some atoms in 1980. We're sitting in the midst of them. We're continuing to set them up. Establishing motes of dust. And so we have to do that knowingly. The comment says, sweep away the tracks, dissolve the traces, lose your eyes and nose, your tongue, your ears, body and mind. Everywhere let the light shine. What is the need for a nation? This is entirely the business of this house. We don't need to establish something false. That in establishing something like a monastery, it's not a thing. I was listening to a talk by Agyoku, who was a long, long time uh, student of Maizumi Roshi's um, successor of uh, Tetsuken, Bernie Glassman, and took over the abbotship of the Center of Los Angeles for many, many years. Wonderful person. She's now kind of retired. And I remember telling a story about the very early years when they didn't have any money. And she was sort of in charge of that. And she went to my Zoom Roshi and said, Roshi, we don't have money. We don't have the money to, to pay for stuff. What are we going to do? And she said, he said, hey, Kyoku, it's okay. It's okay. If we have to lose the place, we'll lose it. He said, the Sangha is what's important. Dad Roshi used to say, if we lose this place, if the place burns down, he said, we'll just go down the road somewhere. We'll just find somewhere else. It's not in the place. This perishing is, is the coming forth of all that is good. And so that's why we practice when we talk about letting go what we're really talking about doing is not establishing a mode of dust, establishing as is something that is fixed and solid and righteous and is doing something to you or will do something for you, something that you have gained and now you're anxious because you could lose it. How many of you had a beautiful period of zazen this week, and then I thought, oh my God, how am I going to hang on to it? <laughs> you can't. You shouldn't. Not establishing. Then, as the sutras say, now we can build a house. Just know that you're building it on water, with water. It's like building a sandcastle. It's gorgeous. And then the tide comes in and it's gone. Of course, you knew that already. It doesn't mean don't build a sandcastle. It doesn't mean don't build a monastery. It doesn't, doesn't, believe, believe, it doesn't mean don't believe strongly about what is good and what we're capable of and to work for that. It means just don't establish that. The Buddha said, dukkha is imputing an unrealistic, imaginary sense of something. This is going to save me. This is going to make me happy. This is going to fulfill me. 
Therefore, this I cannot lose. Therefore, do not take this away from me. The old peasants may not unfurrow their brows, but for now, I hope that the nation establishes a sturdy foundation. So samsara doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon. The brows remain furrowed. But for now, I hope that the nation establishes a sturdy foundation. <laughs> the footnote says, the commentary of that says, one song of great peace. Everyone knows it. When you want to go, go. When you want to stay, stay. Heaven, earth, the whole world is your gate of liberation. How will you establish it? And then he goes on to say, crafty ministers, valiant generals, where are they now? Well, we have those too. People in power, who we would like to believe, we want to believe, are deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That seems to be moving towards shakier and shakier ground. Always wondered, why would people, a people, a group of people, work so passionately to give that up? To give that away, to take away that right. What are we afraid of? What do we do when we're afraid? When we're afraid and somebody says, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of anything. And I know. I know whatever you need to know. I know everything. I know I will take care of you. Don't think, don't examine, don't stop, just follow. Crafty ministers, valiant generals, where are they now? Commentary says, the meaning lies in the fact that to establish a nation and to stabilize a country, and this can be a country, a nation, a body and mind, a sangha, a family, a moment, it is necessary to rely on crafty ministers and valiant generals. That's what we do. But then it goes on to say, but after that, the unicorn appears and the phoenix soars. These are the auspicious signs of great peace. The unicorn appears, the phoenix soars, auspicious signs of great peace. The Buddha was a unicorn, right? I think there might be some phoenixes in this hall, even. After all of that dust raising, even while it's happening, unicorns and phoenixes appear. Seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting, thinking, without creating a false sense of something outside, something permanent, something that is myself, something that is not you. And we practice to trust that much, to let go that completely, that we don't have to follow the habits, the grooves, 
of unexamined and unenlightened thoughts and emotions and minds. And so there is a solitariness about it. Right? In order to move with the current, sometimes we have to go sideways. In order to be in harmony in the midst, sometimes we have to stand alone and carry that. And sometimes it's hard to carry. I used to think, you know, there were times in my misery and self-pity, and I think, why couldn't I just like, I don't know, just go get a job and shut up and like, you know, (laughs) watch TV and, you know, just drink beer and I don't know, you know, cheer for the right football team, whatever. Why couldn't I just do that? I don't know why. It just wasn't going to happen. It wasn't the life that inspired me. It wasn't calling. To see for ourselves. 10,000 miles, pure wind. Only I know. That one song. Everything we do is for this, really. To let our lives be that very thing. And you know, the poetry, the imagery, it's very beautiful. It's very inspiring. It moves us. And we have to live this. So that means going home today. Right? In, in one sense, session comes to an end. But it doesn't really end, does it? Right? What is it that ends? What is it that begins? When does practice stop and start? What is inside of it and outside of it? That, too, can be inspiring words. But it's like, okay, so how do you live that? You know, all the years that I was doing koans, and I would do a koan, and my teacher would pass me, and, and, and very often I would think, okay, am I living this? Am I living this? Do I know this? There is insight, but do I know this? How deeply do I know this? And I always, in asking that, realize, no, not yet, not completely, not enough. There's more. And so, I wanted to mention in closing that um, during the next session, the February session, a Bodhidharma session, I'm going to do Denkai for Sean. Denkai is Dharma, um, the transmission of the precepts. So in our tradition, the Soto lineage, transmission of the Dharma includes several separate stages or aspects. Denkai is a priestly transmission, so it's only done for the ordained. And it means Transmission, den, kai, precepts. So those of you who have received jikai, jikai literally means receiving the kai, receiving the precepts. And so denkai is a transmission of the precepts, meaning that we study the precepts, we practice them, we make vows, we receive the precepts if we do jikai, and then denkai is receiving the transmission of the precepts. So that's how important and and, important profound the precepts are. 
that they're not just rules, they're not just teachings about ethical behavior, but they're, 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 they're dharma through and through. And so this is a, a, um, a transmission in and of itself of the precepts, and it's, it's in our sangha, it's where a person, an ordained person becomes a priest. In other dharma centers, most prevalent actually, when people are ordained, they become priests because most of the time they live at home and have families and stuff, but they're ordained. For us, Tadaroshi really wanted to establish that as a distinction between a lay practitioner. He wanted them to be two clearly defined and integral, having integrity paths, rather so that they weren't like blurry. What was the distinction? And so it's a transmission of its own, and it can be a pathway towards full transmission, dharma transmission, it's which, in which a person becomes a full, fully empowered teacher. And so this is that first step, and that will be happening during that session, and I just wanted to let you know in advance. It's a, a very private matter, so I'll talk more about it, but during that week, Sean will be in the Buddha Hall most of the week, and working together, I'll be working with her, and there's a lot of things that need to be done, come along with it. And, um, yeah, that's it. And so, <laughs> so on that Sunday, you know, I'll say a little bit more. Maybe Sean will also have some things to say, to offer. Dalroshi used to comment and just observe that how, you know, the this, this sort of rites of passage, becoming a student, Chikai, ordination, Shusohosen, that these are very public matters and are sort of experienced in the, by the Sangha, and the Sangha participates. And this is different, you know, that as, as, as the things move along, in a way they become quieter and quieter, right? And there's something that's very, I think, very beautiful about that. It's very, I think it's very important for the person who's in it, you know, knowing that experience, how intimate that is. And that would be something different. A lot of sanghas do this very publicly, and that you know can have its own merit. But I think preserving that quality of that sort of very private nature preserves something about it, allows something about it to be held and brought out. So, um, and the Bodhidharma session, I thought it was, um, I had wanted, first thought about doing it at the end of the Enlightenment Vigil, because I thought that would be very auspicious, but I just couldn't get it together. Because <laughs> 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 there's a lot of preparation. So I thought the Bodhidharma session would be a very nice and auspicious opportunity, very, really lends itself to it, because it's a session where there's not talks, it's really just a sitting session, and there's very little face-to-face, and so it'll be a very nice atmosphere in which all of that will be happening and sort of mingling together. So, all right. So thank you, everyone, for your practice, for being here today. Those of you who are traveling, travel safely. And may we continue our work together. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.